This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. After weeks of speculations and reports from Jonathan Snowden, Jeremy Botter, Darren Ravel, it is now official. The UFC has been sold to the William Morris Agency IMG for what we believe is $4 billion. And we're going to talk about this sale here on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Of course, I am Jason Floyd, as always, joined by Sam Kaplan. Sam, you know, it was a couple of days ago we were doing a show and, and we you know, about John Jones, and we both talked about how we found out about the news. And, well, I pretty much found out about the news the same way I found out about yeah. the John Jones news. I woke up on Monday morning, and as probably most uh, people around my age, one of the first things we always do is look at our cell phone to see, you know, what text messages and, you know, what notifications you have. And, uh my uh, my cell phone was uh, had gone crazy with all the uh, the text messages and notifications about uh, this sale. That I mean, look, we we as people in the industry, we knew this was coming. It was just a matter of when. Yes, and it's interesting that why ha- you know I can understand why a company would deny the report that Jeremy Botter put out there because the sale wasn't done, and we should add that it still isn't done. The actual settlement, the transaction, the exchange of ownership from the Fertitas to IMG WME is not happened yet. It's not going to happen for another couple of weeks. But to come out with such a stringent denial as they did and then to follow it up with a legal letter, I just feel like they made asses out of themselves with that legal letter. I can understand the denial. I do not understand going to such great lengths as, as to send a, a legal letter to Jeremy Botter. It's, uh, it doesn't make them look good when they do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, that's one of the first things you come up to is, you know, and, and are you going to kind of sit there? I did find it funny that uh, Dana White actually responded to a fan where the fan said, hey, are you going to uh, ban the New York Times because they broke this story? It was actually the New York Times who reported it on late Sunday evening also. The CBS uh, affiliate in Las Vegas, who ended up getting a, a sit down, you know, with uh, you know Lorenzo Fertitta, talking about this, and of course, uh, you know, and, and one of the things, and I love the, that point you do bring up that the fact of you know this sale is not final, and in the press release today announcing this, uh, but by W uh, WME IMG, they they know the fact of hey, we still have to close on this, but I mean it's it's just a formality at this point, but uh, you know it's I'll tell you you know. I think when, when I'm thinking about this and you think about what potential changes that came to mind, and maybe, saying this is just me being the broadcaster, one of the first things that came to my mind of, if, if there's going to be a change made in the UFC broadcasting team, it's going to happen pretty quick. Most likely. You know, Joe Rogan has gone on the record and said that if the UFC is sold, he, he's out. And his contract's coming up very soon. I don't know if he if he'll reconsider. I know at certain points in his career he's done business with uh, William Morris Endeavor. I don't know if he still has any representation uh, with them. 
but he's worked with them before. Dana's still involved. The Fertitas are still technically going to own small portions of the company. That, yeah, that was another, I think, kind of a point that that jumped out to me is the fact of, you know, the Fertillas will still have a small share in the company. I think that they'll probably be kept involved as advisors. I'm sure that Ariel Emanuel respects them. I mean, he, he's done business with them extensively before. The current Fox deal that the UFC has, that was negotiated and brokered by Ariel Emanuel. So, he, you know, he's a smart guy. He knows that the Fertitas and Dana White, they are really the brainchild, brain children for the current incarnation of the UFC. They're, they're absolutely 100% responsible for the growth of the UFC as well as MMA. You'd be, have to be really arrogant not to want to continue to draw from their knowledge and their experiences. So it's a very smart move to keep them involved and maybe the only way to really keep them involved was to give them a little piece of the action. Yeah, it's uh you know, obviously Dana White is going to stay on board as the president of the UFC, which I think when all this was being talked about, I mean, I thought it was pretty much I think for the most part of the MMA community that 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 was going to be needed. I think that you know, there's going to be a lot of changes and obviously when a new ownership group comes in, they're you know, they're going to, you know, put their their label on this and how they want to see it going. I mean, I think this is, you know, probably the thing that I'm most interested in is is when they're the television deals with FS1 in and also when the deals with the pay-per-view providers, providers come up to be renegotiated. I think that's probably going to be one of the most interesting times in terms of the future of the UFC. And also, I was also thinking about this, Sam, a little before we were doing the show. Is, you know, there's a lot of people talk about, man, is a UFC worth four billion? You know, personally, I, I think that it's a it's a very large price. But ultimately, is is you know you're worth whatever someone is willing to pay you, whether they're talking about buying your business or whether they're they're looking at to bring you as an employee. Whatever someone offers you, that's what you're worth. Well, there's a there's a multiple, and we've talked about it before. There's a usual usually there's a multiple that you use when when coming up with a valuation for a company, and I think that's usually in the seven to ten range. From what I understand, the the actual sale price that the the multiple is 12 to 16 anywhere in between there i've seen it reported as low as 12 high as 16 so on paper wme img they've overpaid for the ufc substantially but let's make it clear here they're smart businessmen and they're not going to pay this kind of money they're not going to pay a premium for the privilege of owning the ufc unless that they see, unless they see angles on how they can exploit the current business environment in order to make the UFC, which is already a valuable company, even more valuable. I guess if you would talk to Ariel Manuel, he probably believes that they got the UFC at a bargain price. They, they, you know, they paid four billion today. Five years from now, they probably see it maybe as a six to seven billion company. Ten years from now, they probably even see it as a ten billion company. Live sports are all the rage right now. The way we consume media is changing. And to get an entire organization, entire league for that amount, even though the earnings may not justify it, if that's what you have to pay to get into it, it makes all the sense in the world. The more and more that people watch television through streaming, through DVR, the, the, the less and less people watch live television, the greater importance is that it becomes to have appointment television, to have live events, whether, you know, of any kind. So that 
you create programming and content that's DVR proof. You look at NBC. NBC has done a lot in the last two years with live musicals. And, and some people say, well, why are they doing live musicals? The, the, the theory behind it is, hey, if it's live and people know that anything can happen, then they're more likely to, to stay at home or, or make arrangements to watch it live. Yeah, I mean, I, every time I've had the opportunity to talk to someone um, in the television business, and you know, and, and look, I'm I'm very big in, into television ratings. I mean, by the way, uh, as we're recording this show, the Ultimate Fire 23 finale ratings have already come out. The show averaged over one million viewers, so which obviously is wow. great for them. Uh, in terms of the social media aspect, uh, the Ultimate Fire 23 finale on Friday night was number nine in the Nielsen Twitter TV ratings for the week. UFC 200 was number two, which I know kind of uh, some people were a little bit surprised about that here in the United States. The fact of uh, the Euro 16 uh, final actually beat out UFC 200. But, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that I've always had, you know, uh, television executives say is, you know, the one thing about live sports programming is essentially it's DVR proof, you know, and, and so that's where you're able to make your money on, you know, commercials. You know, you don't, you're not going to sit there, you know, the people who are going to watch an NFL football game, they're watching it live, you know, and, and for the most part when, you know, fans consume mixed martial arts, whether we're talking about the UFC, uh, Bellator, World Series of Fighting, typically it's going to be live. I mean, when you look at the, the Bellator DVR ratings, you know, typically those numbers will, when it comes to the plus three numbers, will increase usually 7 to 12% is pretty much the average of when those increase. So your, your primary audience, it's not like uh, you know a Big Bang Theory, which obviously in terms of a DVR rating is, is going to skyrocket yeah. in the amount of percentage. I mean, when you look at you know live sports events, I mean, that's why – I mean, look, you don't hear Fox when it comes to UFC events publicized what the DVR is because to them what matters is the live audience. And, yeah, and that's, why they, that's why they're paying $100 million a year. They're not paying $100 million a year so somebody could watch it on DVR, cut out the commercials. They're paying $100 million a year so they can get live event television, must-see programming, so they can sell advertising, and they could sell that to their advertisers. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's where the money is, and, and that's why I mean, you know, I, I can tell you, Sam, uh, you know, as we're recording this on, on a Monday, that the day the UFC sale guy announced, I, I had people that are are not even in the MMA sports media, just in the sports media in general that that I have, you know, I know, and I've had conversations with today, and and the one thing that they all it comes up is. Well, the word in the industry is that ESPN's making a big run at the UFC when that deal is up. And, you know, with, with the way television is going these days, I mean, it makes you wonder, I mean, is the new ownership of the UFC going to be in a great position here uh, coming up here, you know, in the relative near future where, you know, Fox is going to have ESPN bidding against them and, you know, and someone's going to have, someone's going to overpay for the UFC television product. It's funny that you mentioned that, Jason, because I see it being speculated and quasi-reported by certain media personalities on Twitter that because Ariel Manuel brokered the, the, the original deal with Fox between the UFC and Fox, that it's, it's, it's a shoe-in that they're going to re-up. Well, do, do, do you not know who Ariel Emanuel is? He's a cutthroat businessman. He is a, a fiercely aggressive guy. You know, he, he's, a, he's a capitalist in every sense of the, the word. Will they go back to Fox? Sure, if the money's right. But if the money's not right, he has no predisposed loyalty to Fox. He He's a media 
Kingpin. He he deals with all the major movie studios, all the major TV networks. He has no preference over one over one uh, one over the other. He's going to go wherever the most money is. Exactly. So don't, <laughs> so don't get that twisted. But you know, you know, not to repeat ourselves, but there, there's you know, with with a guy like Ariel Manuel, a visionary like that. It's it's more than possible that you see the UFC not only on Fox, but you see it on ESPN, or you see it on Fox, ESPN, HBO. I, you know, it, Ariel Manuel. This is a this is a guy that has all of his you know hands in, in just about every form of entertainment, movies, television, all the major sports, not just the MMA. I mean, you know, that's where he he built his reputation when it, when it, you know at least in the sports world you're talking about you know the, the major sports leagues and you know he's smart enough to want to probably emulate what the NFL's done and create enough TV packages so that you can have as many TV partners as possible i mean sam you know the the one television platform that i feel like doesn't get mentioned and i think that they you know especially with what they're trying to do with their sports property nbc you know, you know, you look at it's it's a format that doesn't necessarily get mentioned, but you got to look at them. And you know, let's be honest about it. All of a sudden, you know, that comes a, a board. You, you think Viacom wouldn't want to have the UFC back on Spike? Well, we've talked about that off the air. You know, the Fertitas are very competitive, but their level of competitive competitiveness pales somewhat in comparison to Ariel Manuel. The guy is a fierce beast. He's a monster. Another thing that you know we have to consider, you know. If W if WME and IMG if they go through and this deal becomes a transaction, they're going to acquire a lot of intellectual property, not just Zufa, not just UFC, but they're going to retain the rights to the WEC, to Strikeforce, to Pride, to other brands that Zufa has acquired over the years. There's nothing to stop this this new media giant from reopening the WEC or Strikeforce and getting secondary television deals, trying to occupy as many TV partners as possible to make it impossible for competition that's currently out there to exist or for potential competitors in the future to crop up. I mean, they could, you know, if you really, if you think the Fertitas were anti-competitive, you know, Ariel Manuel, he's not a nice guy in a business sense. He's not getting in, in this to allow other companies to, you know, build themselves up. He's not going to relax the policies that the UFC has had. Uh, you know, he, if anything, he's going to go the exact other way and become even more anti-competition, even more aggressive and try to make even more money. I mean, he's got a lot of people that have put money into this. So he's got a lot of people that he, that he has to answer to. So there's going to be pressure on him to perform. This isn't a situation where it's the Fertitas and a family-owned business. And at the end of the day, the only people that Frank and Lorenzo have to answer to are, are themselves. I mean, Ariel Manuel is a part of a board. He's got a lot of different companies, a lot of different people that have put money into this, that are going to put money into this deal. And in order for him to retain his power as the co-chair of WME IMG, he's got to perform. Yeah, you know, um, one of, you know, look, one of the, the best follows in all of, of mixed martial arts Twitter is John Nash, a bloody elbow. And, and he had a lot of great stuff that, that he's tweeted 
uh, since the news of this became official. I mean, you think about, you know, some of the, the decisions that the UFC made. I mean, you know, what you know whether, you know, I know obviously, you know, sponsorship talk is a big thing, but you think about some of the revenues that the UFC got over the last year, how much of that is related to, you know, fighters not having their own sponsors and, and the UFC being able to, you know, get some of those sponsors to, to just pay them as opposed to paying the fighters. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, the UFC has done. But this is also, and I don't know why this became, you know, throughout Monday, I kept seeing this pop up on, on my Twitter timeline. Like, people think that all of a sudden new ownership's going to mean all of a sudden fighters getting paid more. <laughs> I hate to tell you this, folks. That ain't happening. The people that think that, my question to them is, do you follow pro sports other than MMA? Because if you do, you shouldn't be thinking that. Because name for me a pro sports league with a large ownership base of, of rich white males where they've been like, hey, let's uh, let's give more money to our athletes. It, it's, 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 since the beginning of time, it's a constant battle between labor and ownership. And it's, it's, it's one side going against the other to try to get as much money from the other as possible. So what, why do you think Ariel Manuel, WME, and IMG, why do you think that they're going to come in and be nice guys and just say, you know what? Yeah, the Fertitas are screwing these guys. We paid $4 billion so we can increase our, our, uh, our uh, expenses. We're going to pay the athletes even more. Yeah, you know, it's like I saw some things like, oh, they'll probably be greedy owners. Like, what like what businessman doesn't want to make the most money they possibly can? I mean, let, right. let's let's throw that out there. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I co-own Radio Influence. I want to make the most damn money I can make, you know? Right. I mean, this, um, show, this show originates from the United States. The UFC is based in the United States. We're a capitalist culture. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're in, this, in, in this business to make money. I mean, look, you know, I, I would love to see, you know, fighters make more. No, no question would, would I love to see these. These guys make more, but you know, I think and they all- might through other means. I mean, Ariel Manuel is a major player in, in you know entertainment, so maybe you know his involvement, WME and IMG, maybe that the involvement of these massive agencies, maybe that opens the door up to Hollywood for a lot more fighters. And you know, it's and that is something that I know Dana White has already you know talked about it in various interviews. Uh, you know, since the announcement has come up that hey, this is going to open up. Uh, other avenues potentially, you know, it's, um, you know, there have been fighters that have used, uh, you know, the William Morris agency to, to help open up some doors to them. Obviously, very notably, something that we have talked about on this podcast, Ronda Rousey, you know, it's also, uh, you know, John Jones had, had used them in the past to open up some doors for him. But, you know, it's one of those things of, you know, Sam, I don't know, what was it, maybe two, three podcasts ago where we talked about the potential conflict of interest there could be there with two podcasts the, ago, yeah. You know, WME IMG because the fact of they do represent Ronda Rousey, and you know we all know, of course, the Ali Act. Which look, I, I think that you know the new ownership group is going to ju- just be like Zufa. They are going to try to, you know, they will be lobbying hard against this bill to make sure it does not go through. Um, you know, you know, I mean, look, you, you just know that that's the case, you know, but and they can look and uh, for the. The uninformed out there, in case you didn't know, Ariel Manuel's brothers, Rahm Emanuel, the, the mayor of Chicago, uh, the former, I believe he was the chief advisor, the chief of staff for the Obama administration. And, and granted, Rahm Emanuel's approval rating is an abomination right now in Chicago. It's, it's god awful. 
but he is still a major political player with massive ties. And, you know, that, that's, that, you know, Rahm Emanuel, Ari Emanuel, they're, they're brothers, but Ari Emanuel has political connections beyond his own brother. I mean, this is a guy who he probably won't need to necessarily hire a, a lobbying firm to, to try to rally against this bill. He can just pick up the phone and call people in Washington and get it done that way. Yeah, I mean, and look, and, and I thought in terms of, of the Muhammad Ali Act for MMA that it was facing a very long road no matter what because I, I think that there's just, you know, people pro- I think don't understand some of the people in MMA that have that ability to pick up the phone and, and, and talk to people and get them. So I, I thought it faced a long road, but, you know, I think it, it does become, you know, when the sale does become official and and if there is a point that the new ownership group does talk to the media, that's got to be one of the questions of, you know, hey, look, your base is, is an entertainment agency. Are you still going to represent MMA fighters? I'll go for, so far as to say this. If Ariel Emanuel does not want the Ali Act to apply to MMA, then it's a, it's dead. The, you know, it, it's it, it's good as dead. Once the the transition of ownership is made, if he does not, if he's not for this, he has a lot of power, more power than people realize. That the the deal is dead, and that's because there's going to be a lot of politicians in D.C. They're going to get phone calls, and they're going to have to go the way that Ariel Manuel wants them to, or otherwise they're going to have a lot of trouble raising funds for their next reelection campaign. Yeah, you know, and uh, look in terms of uh, Representative Mullen, I've I've heard where, you know, basically when uh, he I think he's up for re-election this year is the fact of uh, his opponent could probably guarantee that there was going to be a lot of MMA money uh, coming their their way in terms of, of the election process there. But you know, um, you know, th- but there's so many aspects of what could change with the UFC. I mean, I think you know one of the major changes we probably will see is maybe in the production side of things. You know, yes. Um, I, I tell you, Sam, I was not a, a fan of the gold mat on Saturday. I don't know what your thoughts were on that. I mean, I felt like I was like, I was back in 2000. I'm back in college watching King of the Cage. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's a perfect, uh, statement right there. I understand the uh, significance of it. They, they, you know, it's, I guess the golden age 200 and they're, they're trying to, you know, make the B-roll when that when that footage from UFC 200 is used as B-roll in the future, they're going to make it stand out, and you know, it's just a way to it's a celebratory thing. But I, I get it, but it, it still looked god awful. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things. I'll tell you another thing about that broadcast that, that I didn't like uh, the the curtain coming down over the octagon for the the videos to be shown on it, and you know, I think for in arena that's probably cool. But from a, a television aspect, I was kind of like, this just doesn't make sense. It just, it just didn't look good. Um, but I, I think that, you know, that's what I mean. Why, why I mentioned about Mike Goldberg is how many play by play announcers are under the WME IMG roster? You know, so it's, I mean, if, that, if, it's not, that's, I was going to bring that point up too. If Mike Gold, I mean, that's why I brought, I mentioned that one of my initial thoughts was, man, if you're Mike Goldberg, I mean, I guess the question is, is, is Mike Goldberg represented by WME IMG already? And maybe if he is, he's in good shape there. But uh, you know, I think that you know, I think production value may be one of the first, uh, you know, start of the changes we see because look, when it comes to production in MMA, no one does it better than the UFC. I mean, absolutely no one does it better. But now I think you're probably going to see some, you know, Hollywood type producers and things along those lines end up getting incorporated in that broadcast to make their own changes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know Mike Goldberg personally. I thought for quite a few years he was a tremendous play by play announcer. 
I feel like in the last several years, his performance has fallen off. He comes off very detached from the broadcast at time, doesn't always come off as an authoritative presence. Sometimes I question how much research he's doing. But Dana and the Fertitas are very, very loyal people, extremely loyal. Boy, I think that some of that loyalty that you see from a family ownership is no longer going to be there. And it would not surprise me if Mike Goldberg, you know, within the next year is no longer the lead play-by-play voice for the UFC. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, and I, I've always said this, I, I kind of felt that they were grooming John Anik to be that guy to take over. I'll tell you this. And Anik may not be a big enough name for Ario Manuel right he, now. He might not, but I'll tell you this right now. If Joe Rogan doesn't want to be um, you know, part of, of the broadcast team anymore, to me, I think it's a no-brainer of who you hire to replace him, Sam. Well, I would love to see Jimmy Smith, but he's under contract, so I oh, guess you're talking about Brian Stan. Yeah, Brian Stan. I, I think, you know, one of the things, and this is, look, I have been in, in play-by-play broadcasting for over 10 years now, you know, and there there are color analysts that separate themselves from everyone else, you know, and, and when you have a color analyst that knows how to, I, I, I the way I call it is, basically dummy down what they're explaining and to get it to where everyone understands what is going on to where that novice fan. I mean, look, I watched UFC 200 with literally a bunch of casual fans at a buddy's house, you know, and and if Brian Stan was on the color that he could have probably, you know, there've been a lot of people there that would have known what was going on. I mean, that to me is what Brian Stan uh, does very well. That's always like when, when I know that Brian's going to be on the call, I, I look forward to listen to him because I always feel like you learn something with him, and with Jimmy Smith, it's the same way. You always feel like you learn something about the game that you didn't know before. I mean, you know, one of the things I always say is it doesn't matter how smart you are about something, you can always learn. And to me, when I listen to those guys, I, I learn something new every time. Yeah, Brian Stan has a John Madden-like feel in the way he articulates his points on the air. So I think that would be a great direction to go in. And, you know, it, it just it, it would not surprise me if uh, Rogan definitely is gone and probably gone sooner rather than later. I mean, if his contract's up and he's he's put it out there, you know, he's not interested in working for new ownership, then, you know, that then it, it, it is what it is. Another point I want to bring up here, it's, you know, we talk about some of the interesting details here. You know, when we heard that Dana White was going to be retained and he was going to have some owners still have some shares in the company, they were going to, you know, the new ownership was going to give him shares. I thought that they would basically be stock options. But from what I've read now, it looks like he's actually getting physical shares of equity that he has had to, uh, that he's going to have to purchase. So that says a lot about how bullish he must be on the potential of this new, new ownership because he stood to make over $300 million from this. That's more than enough money to just cash out and do nothing for the rest of your life or move on and work on other projects. For him to cash that out and then cash back in at a higher multiple, that says to me that he believes there's a lot more money to be made here. Yeah, I mean, obviously there, you know, and, and we talked a little bit earlier, I think one of the things was, hey, that, that this was not a 100% sale that – you know, the Fertitas were, and look, and let's just be honest about it, Sam. It's, 
it's smart for the new ownership group to keep you know the Fertitas around and keep Dana White around because you know they they built this sport to where it is today and you know but another thing that that came to my mind and and wasn't on Saturday night when this was announced it was actually here on Monday was you know it was announced on the post fight show that you know they're going to do Michael Bisming versus Dan Henderson. Uh, you know, the the speculation is that would be uh, in October, and Dana confirmed that they are looking to take that fight to Manchester, England. But it was after the sale was announced, and you know, you're you're kind of you're thinking about okay, what what could be going on with the direction of this company? Maybe this is part of the new direction of the company. I mean, Dana White kept was when he was saying that this is the fight they were going to do. He's like, hey, this is a fight the fans want to see. This is the marketable fight. This is a fight Michael Bisming has been wanting. It, it made me wonder is are these the type of fight bookings we're going to start seeing more and more of in, in the future of the UFC? Wow. Because I, I think that, look, a, a year ago, if you would have told me the guy who's quote-unquote ranked 13th in the division is getting a title shot, I would have called you crazy. Uh, I think it's unrelated to that because th- there's a long list of moves the UFC has made eschewing rankings and number one contenders in order to make a bigger money-making fight. I mean, look how many times, and it hasn't happened much recently, but there, I think maybe it was 2015. How many times did we see someone competing for a world title coming off a loss? Yeah, I mean, but the thing about this, and, and I hear a lot of people talking about it being a big money fight. And, and, and the analogy I always use is go to a sports bar on a Wednesday afternoon during happy hour. How many know Dan Henderson? I think a lot do. I mean, this I, I disagree with you. I mean, he, that's why, it's, but he, that, but that's why CBS paid him so much to leave the UFC and come fight for Strike Force. I mean, he was a big name, and then he got even more exposure by competing on CBS. I mean, he's fought in some big fights in front of some major audiences. You talk about, I mean, the, the best way to become a star and a household name is to fight in a lot of uh, front of a lot of eyeballs. He fought in front of a lot of eyeballs when he fought for Strike Force on CBS, when he fought for the UFC, when he fought Rampage. That was one of the most highly rated fights in the history of basic cable television when it comes to MMA. This is a guy who, when he has fought, has been seen by a lot of people. A lot of people know who he is. Let me ask you this, though. What what do you consider a pay-per-view draw in, in 2016 for the UFC? How many, how many buys does it does that have to mean that your pay-per-view sold? Over 350000 oh, I think that's a fair number. You know, it, I mean, look, and not the rail in the UFC, and, and I had a buddy of mine that said this to me on Saturday night. Explain to me how you sell UFC 201 to the, to the casual <laughs> fan. You don't. <laughs> You're talking about Jake Ellenberger, a guy who has lost, uh, I think it's four of his last five fights, is right now slated to be the co-main event of the fight card based Look, on the, the UFC broadcast. They're giving all of our wallets a rest. That, 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 so we can get ready for UFC 202. I mean, look, it, that's. I mean, if you're. I mean, we're going to find out how much uh, of a of a draw Robbie Lawler is. Would you say Robbie Lawler is a bigger draw than Dan Henderson? No. Absolutely not. I, I just. I think putting. I just. Three fifty may be the number. A uh, uh, Bisming uh, Henderson, but here's the other thing about that is, if you're going to air that live in the United States. What time? What time is time? Is that time is that Chester, England, with the time difference? Are we talking about an afternoon pay per view? Yeah, I think so. And how much does that hurt potential buys there? It probably does a little bit, but Michael Bisping also has an international presence to him. You're going to get buys in other countries. Oh, I mean, look, I, I think it's it's a, it's a it's a no brainer decision to have Michael Bisping. 
defend the middleweight title in, in England. That That's a no-brainer decision. I mean, that that's an easy decision. Um, but, I mean, look, if you're a guy like, you know, Jacare, uh, Yoel Romero, uh, Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, you're looking at, at Dan Henderson getting a title matchup, and you're going, um, why is Dan Henderson getting a title matchup? What has he done to, to even remotely make a case for a title shot? Uh, look, it's hard to argue with that. It's, but this is a business, and Dan Henderson has a win over Michael Bisping. Michael Bisping is a very marketable champion. It's a fight that he wants. He wants to avenge that loss. Dan Henderson doesn't have very many fights left in him. If he loses the Bisping, that's probably going to be his last fight. It's it's an obvious fight to make because I, I think at this point, obviously the UFC will never come out and say it, but because you know the, the middleweight title's kind of been passed around so much, and now that it's on Bisping, I don't think they would mind if Bisping made two or three defenses with it. And oh, this I, is a I need no question. And Dan Henderson, you know, if you look at Jacare, you look at Weidman, you look at Rockhold, and, and you throw Dan Henderson in, into that mix, I think out of all th- four guys, Henderson's probably uh, gives Bisping the, the, the most likeliest chance to hold on to that title. Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think if, you know, Bisping should win that fight. I, I think it's – that's a fight that that he should win, but you know, obviously, we both know, you know, anytime, you know, one of the things, that, and look, we'll, we'll agree or disagree whether you know Dan Harrison's a a mainstream draw or not, um, but I, I, you know, it, it makes you wonder if if Ari if was Ari Manuel, you know, consulted with when all the changes were going down last week with UFC 200 because I I think that it was a massive mistake in putting Misha Tate as the main event. Yeah. Uh, no arguments there. I, I still I mean, don't understand it. When, when that announcement was made, Sam, uh, it was right uh, right at the, the tail end of, of UFC Fight Night 90 on Thursday night. And I was just, it, it was a head-scratcher move. I'm like, Brock Lesnar is clearly, clearly the draw. Uh, and, and he is a guy. I mean, look, I was you know at a buddy's house watching these fights, and it was essentially uh, outside of our buddy, who I consider a hardcore MMA, hardcore MMA fan, Everyone else is, was a casual MMA fan. And, you know, there, there was five guys there, and two of the five guys left after uh, the Brock fight ended, which to me was very telling. Maybe it was a money issue. Maybe Mark Hunt has a clause in his contract where he does get pay, uh, points on a pay-per-view if he's the main event. And they never had intentions of making Mark Hunt in the main event, and they probably already paid him a little more to fight Brock Lesnar. And knowing that uh, 200 was going to do a big buy rate, Maybe they don't want to have to cut a huge check to Mark Hunt that they otherwise normally wouldn't have to cut. I, I don't know. That's the only, only logical explanation that I could come up with, but I don't even think that's very logical. Mark Hunt's disclosed a salary for that per the Nevada Athletic Commission, 700000 So that's, that's, a, whew, that's, that's a lot of money. And, and I, wonder, I wonder if he still gets points in the pay-per-view or if he only gets points if he's in the main event. Maybe, that had, maybe they didn't want to give him over a million dollars for that fight. And, and and I mean that's that's a, another interesting point I didn't think about is as the UFC goes forward new ownership group how will pay per view points be handled with the new ownership group? Yeah, I mean they're I mean, going to honor existing I'm, contracts, but as they sign new athletes, that could be a material change to their template contract. But I tell you, when you look at those salaries from from UFC 200, I mean I think it was around I think it was a seven million dollars uh, payroll. That they had there, uh, Amanda Nunez, she had a flat fee of a hundred thousand. Misha Tate, uh, half a million. Brock Lesnar, two point five million. Uh, Anderson Silva actually had a higher disclosed salary than Daniel Cormier had. 
Anderson six hundred thousand, Daniel Cormier five hundred thousand. Uh, but you know, obviously, in terms of you know all those, I think the only uh, you know look, and it should always be known these are disclosed salaries. This really doesn't tell the true story. And a lot of people are looking at T.J. Dillashaw, the fact that he was on a twenty-five and twenty-five deal for this fight. I would I would highly imagine that that was not what he made. On that night, but uh, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's disclosed salaries, and I know a lot of people wanted to know this. Will Brooks was on a fifty and fifty deal, so he made a hundred thousand. Which it was kind of interesting with him saying where a lot of the post fight reaction of Will Brooks I thought was very similar to the post fight reaction of Eddie Alvarez after his first fight in the UFC, and now he's a UFC lightweight champion. Yes, it's, uh, you know, it wasn't an, an awesome performance from Will Brooks, but he went in there against a tough guy, and I, I think he definitely won that fight 29-28. I, you know, there's certain people that didn't think he won that fight. I don't know how you could score it any other way. Yeah, how could you not score for Will Brooks? I mean, I, I mean, I, I thought, what was it, in the third round, I just thought he kind of was, I didn't understand why he was putting himself in that situation against the cage, um, but uh, I thought it was a clear 29-28 for Will Brooks. But athletically, he is just supremely talented. I think he, you know, obviously has a big future in the UFC. And boy, I was wrong. I thought that the UFC was really going to hammer him on what they they, they were going to pay him. And they didn't. You know, a lot of people say the UFC is greedy. The UFC doesn't take care of their athletes. But 50 and 50 for a guy that's never fought in your organization and really had no leverage at that point after he was released by Bellator. That's you know the UFC did not have to pay him fifty and fifty. I'm willing to bet, and I'm not saying he would have been happy about it, but I'm willing to bet if they offered significantly less than that, Will Brooks still would have take, taken the offer. Yeah, I mean Will Brooks's last disclosed salary was for his win over Dave Jansen back at Bellator one thirty six, which uh, it was thirty six and thirty six. His last fight in Bellator was uh, you know at, with the Missouri Office of Athletics, and they do not disclose. Uh, salary, so we don't know what he made for there. So, he got a raise. Uh, you know. I thought he was going to take a pay cut. Not only did he not take a pay cut, he got a raise. And I think maybe what you know the reason why the UFC might have done that is to send a message to athletes and other organizations. You know, hey, if if you do, you know, basically sabotage your deal and, and you know uh, make yourself such a nuisance to deal with that the uh, promotion you're with releases you. If long as we think you're valuable, we're still going to negotiate with you in good faith. So. Don't be afraid to uh, rock the boat. We're still going to, you know, pay you what we think, you know, pay you what you're worth. Yeah, I mean, and look, and, and I love, and I also say this about Will Brooks. I love the fact of he took advantage of that microphone and he didn't do the UFC fighter typical cliche of, well, I'll just fight whoever the UFC yeah. puts in front of me. I love the fact that he starts calling out Eddie Alvarez. Yeah, look, I mean, that fight's not going to happen anytime soon, but it's, it's, it, it, it could happen eventually. And it's a great way to start selling that fight because if it does happen a year from now, that's potentially a one-year build to to a fight that you know suddenly becomes very marketable if it does happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a uh, I like the move personally. I I, I always think that you gotta you gotta well, that's take. That's why it, he's and, there. He's there to win the title. Yeah, you definitely. Got. Let me ask you this. You know, um, if we're including the UFC sale in this discussion of the biggest news stories over the last week. Is the UFC sale number one to you, or is it John oh, without, Jones? Without question. Without question. See, the reason I would say the John Jones situation is, we all knew the UFC sale was coming. 
you know, we didn't know. We we obviously didn't know that the situation with John was coming. That's to me why I would say John Jones is the biggest news item of of the week. I mean, John uh, Jones is the story of the year in MMA, but the sale of the UFC is the story of the decade. I mean, mm-hmm. seeing the UFC sold a, a a sports property as big as the UFC sold like that, that's something that we're only going to see once in our lifetime. Well, I think also you got to look at just the uh, the impact it's going to have on the industry. I mean, I mean, Sam, I'm sure you're you're just like myself, where uh, the phone has been ringing off the hook, uh, uh, you know, over the past couple of you know last uh, you know twelve hours or so of people just kind of calling you and you know kind of seeing what's going on because I, I think really uh, it's probably more of a lot of uncertainty at this point more than anything else in the industry. And one thing I do want to clarify, because I know I'm going to hear it on Twitter. Yes, the UFC has been sold before, but never for $4 billion. In fact, not even close. The last time it was sold, it was sold for $2 million. So I'm talking about a sports property as large as this, the UFC being as big as it is. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to see the UFC sold, you know, in the next 30 years. I well, could be well, wrong, but it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Here's another aspect of, of why the UFC could also be as valuable as they are. You know, and you you look at the digital media property they have been building over the no. past couple of years and UFC Fight Pass and what that could eventually, you know, turn into. I mean, I think that you have to look at that aspect and say that's a, a big reason why probably uh, Ari Emanuel and everyone around him look and said, okay, look at what these guys are doing with UFC Fight Pass. We come in, what can we do with this thing? Also, another aspect is China. You know, there's over 6 billion people in the world. I think over 1 billion of, of them are in China right now. I mean, that's just a massive population. Many MMA promotions have tried to make inroads into China, into the Chinese market, but it's very difficult. China and, and you know, there's, you know, America, you know, a lot of people, you know, criticize America, but I'll tell you this, when it comes to foreign interests coming in and being allowed to do business, America is one of the most favorable tolerable and open countries when it comes to outside business interests. There's a lot of countries out there, China amongst the top of that, that list that are very closed off towards foreign interests coming in and doing business in that country. But now WME IMG owners, you know, the, the pending owners of the UFC, there's Chinese money involved in that conglomerate. They're going to have, you know, some major Chinese influence behind them and that is going to help them be accepted in china and if they can open up china if they can become a dominant player in china and it's no it's not a given just because they have chinese money behind them uh, it's not a given but if they can kind of break in there in a major way because right now the ufc has only been on the outskirts of china you know macau uh, doing shows which is just a resort area a resort island and those shows were paid shows. The, 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 the hotel properties brought them in. But we've never seen a UFC show in mainland China that sold, you know, 20, 30,000 tickets. And, you know, they're, they're set up to do that. They're set up to start doing shows in China to get, possibly get a very lucrative TV deal. And if they can open up China, it's, it's a completely different ballgame. Yeah, you know, um, you know, we mentioned about the conflict of interest uh, a little earlier, and I want to mention this comment that we got from uh, Brian Abraham. He says, will Rousey be getting special treatment, favorable matchups, choice of venue, et cetera, now? I mean, obviously, I think if you're anyone in that in that women's bantamweight division, which, by the way, apparently that, you know, you look at that title now, it's changed hands now three times in the last three title ah, fights. I mean, you know, hey, when's, I mean, the last, when's the last time we've seen a successful title defense at 135 female? 
Uh, that would have been when Rousey defeated. Da, 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 da. Oh, who was that? Was that? It wasn't Cat Singana. It wasn't that long ago. I, I think it might have been. Well, no, it wasn't. There was somebody else after Cat. I'm pulling up Ronda Rousey's record right now. Um, her last successful title defense was against Abech Cohea back in August of last year. Prior okay. to that, it was it was Cat back in February of 2015. But uh, you know, it's also. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people brought this up. I mean, you talk about a result not going the way. You would like it to go if you're if you're uh, you know the business owners of the UFC. That's you, you want, fault. That's not fault, Jason. And, and look, I said it leading this. I thought there was red flags on Misha Tate going into that fight. I when you when I hear interviews called it. You did call of, of, of fires and they're talking about the life of a champion and and we're not talking about the actual fighting part. That's a red flag. And even when my buddies you know uh, text me after the fight was over and he said he goes. When Tate was standing there, it's like she was trying to pump herself up to get herself excited for the fight. It's like she looked like she did not want to be there. And once again, her boxing defense is just really weird. And in and, and that fight, it, to me, it was clear very early on. I go, oh, Tyler's changing hands. This thing ain't lasting long. And, you know, kudos to Amanda Nunez. Goes in there and, and gets the job done, and, and we'll see what, what the UFC does there. Um, I'd say if I was them, Sam, I would not rush Holly Holm back into a title fight. I would do the Juliana Pena fight, and then you could potentially set up a bigger fight because, uh, you know, it's just do you want to risk, you know, Holm potentially losing to Amanda Nunez? Well, back to the Rousey question that our uh, listener had. I would say that, yes, she's going to get special treatment, but she already has gotten special treatment, and she's going to get special treatment because she's a star athlete who can sell a lot of pay-per-views. Conor McGregor will get starred, will get favorable treatment by the new ownership. Uh, you know, anyone that can sell pay-per-views and make the company money, they'll be treated in a special way and have a lot of influence over decisions. I agree with you. I don't, I, I don't think that Holly Holm should be rushed back in, into that spot. You know, the fights that you want to make, you know, are, are home Tate, Rousey Tate, Rousey home. You, you, you know, you want to try to see if you can get the belt back on one of them so that you can get those big money matchups. And, and you know, those fights can headline pay-per-view. Juliana Pena versus Amanda Nunez is a great fight, but it's not going to sell a single pay-per-view. Put it on Fox. Yeah, yeah, you have to put that fight on Fox. And I'm sure the UFC, you know, is going to be okay with that, but I'm sure they'd rather be doing Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm in Madison Square Garden this fall. Oh, oh, without. For the title. For the title. That's a fight you want to do. Let me ask you, because this is a question I've got asked a couple times over the past couple days, and um, there is something more I want to add on Misha Tate here, but I want to go to this point here first. You know, there, there's a lot of talk about 125 women in, in the UFC. If you're if you're running title relations, is that something you would go down that road? I'd rather see a female 125 division than the the male 125 division. Well, yeah, it's uh, obviously there. There's no steam behind that one. I mean, how, I mean, you talk about the you know the crappy week the UFC had last week with with everything that went on. The fact of you name Misha Tate as the main event and she shows up literally thirty seconds to weigh in. Yep. I mean, could you, I mean it's just, and that was that to me was another red flag when you when you're showing up that late. Which it was interesting, and, and this really did not get publicized. Um, 
at least I didn't notice by either the Nevada Athletic Commission or the UFC, the fact of that early weigh-in was the only weigh-in. You had between 8 and 10. If, if you weigh in at 950, 959.30 and you miss weight, there is no additional hour or additional two hours. Boom, you're done. I don't and you like miss that. weight. Yeah, to me, they. I believe in open weigh-ins, but I believe in an all-day weigh-in. They can, you know, fighters on weigh-in days should be, you know, I think that 5 p.m., 7 p.m. time that should still be the main weigh-in. But if a fighter is on weight, they should be rewarded for being on weight on time for coming into the fight more prepared, and they should be allowed to weigh in early. But you you shouldn't force the fighters to have to all weigh in that early if they're not ready. You know, still, you know, 24 hours, you know, it's just. I don't like it. I just don't like the idea now. It, you know, we we I think we were one of the first people to really suggest that idea of doing the early weigh-ins because I had seen it done when I was with Bellator. But not everyone is ready to make weight at 8 a.m. Not everyone's ready to make weight. For, you know, about 48 hours before they're scheduled to fight. You know, the, yeah. the idea of doing the early weigh-in was to reward those fighters that were prepared, that didn't come in super heavy, that, that decided not to carry a lot of weight during their camp and dieted down properly by not wait, making them wait all day to stay on weight. You know, a guy that is on weight uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, because he's prepared, you know, you're, you're making you're penalizing that guy because now he has to stay. He has to not eat or drink or not eat or drink very much in order to stay on weight until 5 p.m. It defeats the whole purpose. They still should keep that later way in time. And also, I mean, obviously, that's, uh, you know, obviously the new ownership's not going to really have a say in what goes on. That's more about uh, Jeff Nowitzki and uh, Mark Ratner working with the athletic commission there. But, you know, it makes you. It makes you wonder how much I think that my the the just that I got from people is that all the fighters knew that hey you you had to weigh in uh, at that time. I also say this: I think the UFC missed out on a golden opportunity. Of man, could you imagine if they were broadcasting it live in some way and the drama that you could have had? I mean, oh. you imagine if you're FS. I mean, if you're FS1, you had to be kicking yourself going. Man, could you imagine this drama we could have had unfolding on FS1? Is Misha Tate going to make it to the fight? Is she going to weigh in or not? I mean, just, you know, obviously it's just... But it, but it's weird because I can't tell you how many weigh-ins I've been at where fighters arrive, I'm talking about extremely late. Uh, they're, they're, I, you know, and nothing, no, no threat of uh, not letting the fight ever happened. It's kind of weird that it's on such a big show... They made a threat that she wouldn't be allowed to fight at all. Makes you wonder if there was more to that story that we just don't know about. Yeah, yeah. that there was something else going along the lines of, of you know you know it's, but still it's just to me it was a mistake to have her as the main event of the fight card because um, you know Brock was the draw and uh, you know I think one of the big storylines about last weekend and this goes from I think every card that the UFC did last weekend is that that difference between fighting entertaining versus fighting smart and you know we saw a lot of fighters go out there and just uh you know fight a smart fight i think uh you go thursday night roy nelson 
against Derek Lewis. Uh, Friday night, uh, you look at uh, Andrew Sanchez against Khalil Roundtree. I think a lot of that you can maybe, uh, in terms of, of the Nelson Lewis fight and the Sanchez Roundtree fight, is where one fighter just has to be able to get off their back more than anything else. And then you look at on Saturday night UFC 200. You know Daniel Cormier against Anderson Silva. I tweeted this. I mean, look. You know, Daniel Cormier made a lot of money on Saturday night. Not as much money as he probably could have made against John Jones. But the fact is, that's not the type of performance that gets people who, you know, ne- hardly ever watch UFC and sit there and go, all right, I want to watch Daniel Cormier's next fight. I mean, to me, he just, I understand why he took the, the route he did in that fight, but it's not exactly going to get fans uh, all giddy to watch him fight again. Yeah, you have to take risks. You have to put yourself out there in order to become a mega draw. Look at Conor McGregor and the way he fights. You know, he, he doesn't always fight safe, but he goes out there, puts on a show. And that's what fans want at the end of the day. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, tell you about a guy who didn't fight safe. That was Eddie Alvarez. Did you see that? He had, he had RDA stunned. And did you see that, that running jump knee he took from across oh, the cage? That, that could have, that could have ultimately cost him the fight. I mean, but, that could have. But, but that's going know, for it. That's going yeah, for it. And, yeah. and I mean, had he Alvarez, hit that, if he had hit that and knocked him out with that, I mean, that, that's, that's at least 50 grand in tangible money. But how much more money would he have made in the B-roll of that being shown, oh, shown yeah. and, and, and him, his legacy, you know, and his reputation growing? That, that's the Eddie Alvarez that we love. That, that is the Eddie Alvarez people have been waiting for in a UFC fight. Well, know, can we, I tell we, you why we probably hadn't seen that until now? Because he was down at the Black Zillions for so long. And I, I don't think that that camp did him any favors. I'm not saying it's a bad camp. I'm not saying it can't hurt. I uh, can't help certain fighters. But I don't think that that, that atmosphere down there, that unstructured atmosphere, uh, was, uh, was conducive towards the style and mentality of the kind of athlete that Eddie Alvarez is. And I think that Eddie Alvarez being down in Florida – uh, you know, being, you know, having to move his immediate family down there when, when their, their family is up here in Philadelphia. I think moving his family back, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming his family is much happier and that's going to make, uh, you know, for a happier and less stressed out Eddie Alvarez. And I think working with a guy like Mark Henry, it, it's paid massive di- dividends because I'm not trying to disrespect the Black Zillions, but, you know, when Eddie Alvarez, you know, I followed his career for a long time. And the one thing, when Eddie Alvarez worked with Stephen Haig of the Fight Factory, there was always certain tells that they would discover while researching a fighter on video. And Eddie would come in with a game plan, and he would have – it would be a micro game plan. He would have specific responses to certain things that his opponent routine, routinely did, and he would exploit it. And, and he would exploit it to great success. I mean, if a fighter uh, you know, dropped his right hand every time he jabbed, Eddie you know, always had that counter ready. Uh, you know, if a fighter uh, didn't have good kick defense, you know, Eddie w- would throw leg kicks. I mean, there was all, you know, if, if a fighter uh, didn't, you know, wasn't an active fighter, uh, you know, Eddie would go for a takedown 30 seconds left in the, in the round to seal the round for, for him. I mean, there was always a micro game plan. And I hadn't seen that in recent fights. Eddie didn't have those response, those pre-prepared counter responses uh, timed up like he had in the past. But we saw that against Dos Anjos, because Dos Anjos would open up, and Eddie wouldn't just throw. He would throw combinations. Yeah, I mean, it, it was – and if if people saw the embedded that I want to say was posted, uh, I want to say your Friday night or Saturday morning by the UFC, and 
it's the whole team Edgar's reaction where at the point where he's got him and they're just like, just throw it, just throw it, screw the technique, just throw it. I mean, really, he did screw the technique, but that was old school Eddie Alvarez. And uh, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's crazy to think about, you know, after Eddie had lost to Donald Cerrone, People were saying, "Hey, should this guy be going, fighting at 145 pounds?" And <laughs> no, he's now the you... champion at 155. <laughs> yeah, Who, and was he was he still with? Uh, I, he was still with the Black Zillions for that camp, wasn't he? For uh, the Cerrone the fight. fight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just think coming back to Philly, leaving the Black Zillions, I think that was a huge move. I think that was a very crucial move on his part. Yeah. And let's 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 face reality. Eddie Alvarez is not the only big name to have le- to have left the Black Zillions camp in, in recent years. No, he's not. I mean, there, there's been uh, multiple guys that that have left. I mean, Rashad Evans of all people, the best friend of Glenn Robinson left. I mean, yeah. that you know, that tells you all you need to know there. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, it's interesting to kind of see what what does happen there. But I mean, Eddie Alvarez now, you, you know, uh, obviously he he's campaigning for that Conor McGregor fight, which you can't blame him. I mean, you you can't blame him there because you know, at the end of the day, he's a prize fighter and he's trying to get the most money he can, and and we'll see what happens. By the way, did you see the photo of Conor McGregor doing the during the Frankie Edgar Jose Aldo fight? No. Oh, I gotta send it to you. It is. It's they're in a striking, you know, pose, and then all of a sudden, it's you see Connor just standing up with just this dead stare at both these guys, and uh, <laughs> it's just it was a great photo by uh, the, the UFC photographer who got it, Josh uh, Hedges, who, who who takes all the photos for the UFC. Just a just an absolutely a, a tremendous photo. Uh, that that con that they had there. It was it was one of those photos that it, uh, somebody during the fight had texted me and they're like, "Hey, you need to see this photo." I mean, it was it was just absolutely an unbelievable photo. And uh, you know, of course, uh, they had the press conference for for UFC uh, two hundred two back on uh, Thursday. A very uneventful uh, press conference there uh, between uh, between those two guys. But obviously, that's going to be a fight that uh, we're you know we're we're all looking forward to seeing that fight. Uh, you know, here in uh, in just over a month. Yeah, and you know, two hundred two is going to be a big show, and then they've got two hundred three with the debut of CM, CM Punk. You know, th- these are some big, big pay per views coming up, and you know, this is going to be a big pay per view year for the UFC. Even with the loss of John Jones, even with Ronda Rousey going down in defeat, UFC is proving it can still make a lot of money on pay per view, even when their top guys are out. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, I think that's the other side of, of this is with the new ownership group of, of can they make stars. I mean, you, you look at a guy like Derek Lewis, who is absolutely hilarious on he social is. media. I mean, <laughs> just, is. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, it, but that guy, he's got the personality. It, the only question is, can he show the fighting ability to become a top five guy? I mean, could you imagine if Derek Lewis could somehow work his way as a UFC champion with that personality? Yeah, no, he I would mean, be like a George Foreman. Start- He'd be like a George Foreman type guy. And, you know, he has shown it in the past. You know, Derek Lewis, if you go back and you, you check some of his past fights, he's got some really vicious knockouts. But fighting a, a much tougher level of competition in the UFC those knockouts are obviously going to be a little bit harder to come by, but if he can adjust, take his game up, raise it a little bit, you know, he, he could be a big time guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I know he wants that rematch against Roy Nelson, but, uh, sorry, Derek, I don't want to see that fight again. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, you know, you know, I, I tell you what, I, I'd probably give him Travis Brown. You know, that's probably the route I would go kind of see where, where he kind of stands yeah. up there. Of course, you know, Kane with a great performance. He's got a, 
you know, put himself right there uh, in line for it. So, you know, it's uh, I wouldn't mind seeing Derek Derek Lewis versus uh, uh, Junior Dos Santos. Oh, uh, yeah, that's another one. Junior's recovering from shoulder surgery right now. I think he's got probably about another six weeks of recovery. Okay. Uh, left on that shoulder surgery. But, uh, you know, Derek Lewis, I mean, the guy's got the personality. There's a lot of guys. And, by the way, him falling asleep at the post-fight press conference <laughs> was pretty hilarious, too. <laughs> I mean, can I tell? And, by the way, uh, okay, I'm sorry, but I got to mention this one. Will Brooks wins his first UFC debut, and now you're already trying to get the guy to fight his teammate, Dustin Poirier? Yeah. Like why? Why are you asking that question? Like, like, like there isn't enough people at at one fifty five. They probably have like hundred guys to fight. You know, it, it will. So look, I'm not gonna. And anyone that knows Will Brooks and Dustin Poirier, they're they're very good friends. I mean, I, and I was just like, of all the questions you're gonna ask him, now you're trying to see if he's gonna fight is one of his good friends and his teammate. I'm like, come on. <laughs> You know, I just, ban that. Take that guy's press credentials away. Oh man, I just—it was one of those questions. I was like, oh my goodness. I mean, I was like, oh god. But you know, it was—you uh, know—obviously a lot of uh, crazy times going on. Uh, but I do got to mention this. I, I talked to Douglas Lima a couple of days ago, doing an interview for this week for for the Bellator card, trying to trying to sell me on how he thinks he's got to be ready for Paul Daly to uh, shoot a takedown on him. I'm like, come on, Douglas. That <laughs> Funny. I I love every Douglas. Douglas, yeah, yeah he's he's yeah. He, you could joke around with him. He he's really, but uh, yeah, that's a uh, he's a good delay, dude, and I think he's going to beat Paul Daly. Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, look, I think he's going to knock him out. I think he's yeah, too as big. long as as long as he's healthy. I mean, that's that's always a question you have with especially everything he's gone through. But uh, said to me, he's you know one hundred percent ready to go. Uh, by the way, Michael McDonald and John Lineker Wednesday night on FS One. That's a great uh, you know yeah. weight matchup there. Yeah. I just. I just really wish Bellator was airing live on Saturday and not on tape delay. Well, I think it's going to be a major mistake. And, you know, we all know that their ratings in recent months have not been strong. And, I, you know, I've talked to certain people in the television industry, and they think this could be another tough rating for Bellator because they're, it's not going to be live. It's in the dead of summer, and it's coming off a big UFC event, you know, where – this event has not gotten much attention in the vacuum of all the press from the UFC sale and UFC 200. So, you know, it, it's it's going to be a tough rating for them, and it could be a tough rating for them. And you have to yeah. wonder, you know, if they, if they continue to have shows where the ratings are not strong, what what's going to happen? Is there going to be a response? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always said the thing about Bellator, and I think you could you could say this about the World Series of Fighting as well. You have to, you got to do things to get your fans interested. I mean, obviously the UFC had, had done that last week with, with UFC 200 and, and getting their fans excited. I, I think the one downside to International Fight Week with the three fight cards in, in three days that they did, uh, you start looking at their next couple of fight cards. You you look at the South Dakota show coming up on Wednesday. You look at the the Fox show next Saturday in Chicago, and then you look at the pay-per-view at the end of the month, there's not a lot of fights that get you excited. And, and yeah. I think that that's the downside of doing three fight cards in three days. Well, you know, maybe some of it's calculated. Maybe they wanted the best fights they could get with the most attention, and maybe these fight cards, maybe the UFC itself is not excited about these fight cards and, and running these fight cards, but they have so many fighters under contract. They have so many fighters under, uh, they you know, they have TV so many t- TV commitments to do shows. Maybe they're just doing these next three shows to meet obligations and maybe trying to dial down 
the adrenaline and the momentum a little bit, kind of like a, a, when you go to a concert. You know, bands aren't going to play six number one hits in a row. At a certain point, they throw in some B-sides to kind of get the audience to, to give them a little bit of a rest uh, before they bring them back up and bring their energy level back up. So maybe this is calculated. Sam, some of our young, younger audience may not know what the B-side is. It's true. I guess everyone, <laughs> nobody bought, nobody gets CDs or records anymore. That's 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 a good point. It's, a, it's Every, a everything's all, you know digital now. I mean, it, it's like I forget. I was watching something the other day on television, and uh, it was it was a game show, and they're like, "What what do you use a if you're if you're old enough to have CDs? What do you do with those CD cases when you take the CD out? I mean, there's oh, no I, other use it, for them. I don't even have my CDs anymore. I threw them all out. I don't even buy DVDs anymore. I get everything off of iTunes so I can get my movies from any kind of device. But you, you, you brought up the World Series of Fighting, Jason. What if Ariel Manuel, WME, IMG, they go into a buying mode and they want to consolidate the industry? They want to do a roll-up? What if they go out and they start buying companies like the World Series of Fighting? Or they try to buy Bellator? And they, they, you know, try to take over those TV deals, take over those contracts, and just try to dominate the, the, the planet. I mean, look, I think that in terms of the World Series of Fighting, obviously you could get that at a, a much cheaper rate than you could, uh, you know, Bellator. Because, I mean, look, you know, Viacom has invested a lot of money in Bellator over the years. I mean, you talk about from, uh, you know, becoming the majority owner of the company, and then, of course, you know, having to, you know, uh, buy out Bjorn Rebney and buy out Tim Donaher. I mean, there's there's a lot of money there, and I think that there's probably a dollar figure that if they came to Viacom right now and offered it up, that Viacom would take it. Uh, you know, but I think it's a, it's it's an excellent point you bring up. But then do do if you're the UFC because of uh, the uh, the SEC, you know, inquiry into them about being a monopoly over the past couple of years, is that a route that Ari Emanuel would want to go? It would be a fight, but it's a fight that he can really wage and, and wage well with his political connections. I mean, they, they, it's he's a power broker in just about any aspect of life that you can think of. He's got, you know, he's got connections. He's a very connected guy, and he's got a lot of politicians that uh, are going <laughs> to, you know, vote in his favor in order to, so that they can guarantee their own longevity and security in, in, in the realm of politics. I mean, you go against Ario Manuel as a politician. And he wants to put his resources against your reelection. You're, 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 there's a good chance you're done, you know. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of people that don't want to uh, raise his ire and want to stay in his good graces and don't want to get sideways with him. I, I think that if anyone can pull off some of these highly aggressive, potentially anti-competitive moves, it, it's Ario Manuel. The, the guy is a massive power broker. I, I know we've made that point multiple times, but I cannot stress it enough and you know i mean they, they could they, they they he'll have the capital to buy the world series of fighting and, and you know they could just buy the world series of fighting rebranded as the world extreme cage fighting the return of world extreme cage fighting and, and run that you know you look at what al Heyman has done with the pbc trying to get on as many networks as possible to force out his competition to kind of send them to the background put them on the back burner and I've got to think that Ari Emanuel is going to have, you know, similar aspirations. It wouldn't surprise me to see WME, IMG owned promotions on a multiple, on multiple platforms of networks. And if they have to resurrect old brands or acquire new brands to kind of occupy some of those deals so that competing companies don't uh, ha- have the access to those, th- those television deals, wouldn't surprise me if it happened. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, 
it's and I've said this a couple of times. It's interesting times lie ahead right now, and you know there is a, a, a little bit of uncertainty right now with the UFC of just what's going to happen as new ownership. But I love John Anik's tweet uh, earlier today when he was mentioning the fact of you know on my way to South Dakota to call UFC Fight Night ninety one. He's like, you know what, the show must go on. The show's yep. got to keep yep. rolling because I mean it, this is it, to me this is the the crazy thing about the the, the UFC just how the train just keeps rolling. I mean you got to think about you're, they're doing all those shows in Vegas last week and over the weekend they've got a crew in, in South Dakota already getting all those fighters ready to go for that fight card. So yep. it just kind of shows you I mean how big a, a of a of a company this is and how they can you know, have people in, in different places all the time. I mean, I, I think that, you know, look, uh, you know, a name we haven't brought up in, in this podcast is Gary Cook to kind of see what his new role will be with the new ownership group. Yeah, I mean, Dana White's the, the he's going to be the president, but he's not going to be the CEO. Could the CEO be Gary Cook? That, you know, that's a name that we've heard a lot, that I've read a lot about. The speculation is that, you know, no matter who is going to buy the UFC, that his role would increase. I mean, he is the former head of a sports league. So he, he has that experience. He has that that pedigree. He has it on his resume. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, another. And, of course, he has been, you know, the key guy in developing the UFC's brand over in the U.K. to see what happens there. Uh, back, I want to quickly go back on Eddie Alvarez real quickly because we got to ask this question. Uh, you know, if he defends the belt a couple of times, does he go down as one of the best lightweights ever? I mean, that 155 pound belt in the UFC, it's you know, it, it's it's a tough belt to to defend multiple times. Um, but if he can defend that belt a couple of times, he's got to be considered one of the best lightweights of all time. To me, he's already one of the best lightweights of of all time. But I, of course, I'm biased. You know, I was a matchmaker for for a lot of his fights, and I'm from the same town as he is, and I, I I've grown up watching him fight. I've followed his career since the early days. So I'm a huge Eddie Alvarez fan. I'm probably the wrong guy to ask about that. But you know, if he can beat some of these top level guys in the UFC and and, and finish them like he did against Dos Anjos, yeah, he's he's going to go down as one of the greatest UFC lightweights of all time. It's a no brainer. His first title defense has got to be in Philly. You would think, you know, they haven't, the UFC hasn't been to Philly in a long time. They haven't done a lot of shows in PA. The last time they did a show was in Pittsburgh and, you know, Brian Stan and some other people were very public about how the commission handled themselves. So I don't know if the UFC is going to be really excited to come back and work with the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission, but by not doing so, by not having Eddie Alvarez defend his title in Philadelphia, they'd be leaving a lot of money on the table, I can tell you firsthand that Eddie Alvarez is a massive ticket seller. I was essentially the promoter when Eddie fought Roger Huerta in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, I, I set up a lot of the logistics for that event, and I got to work closely with Eddie and his family with regard to consignment uh, ticket sales. We, you know, Eddie was more than willing to do what was best for the organization and sold literally sold tickets out of you know out of the back of his car. Um, you know, that's something he had done early in his career, you know, himself. Uh, but for a major fight like that, with all the training that he had done, you know, it, it, as, as he grew in his career, he had his family help him with the consignment sales more and more. And his brother, Louis, uh, you know, was just was was awesome. I mean, Eddie literally, the, you know, the Alvarez family I, and I have the I had the count. They literally sold nine hundred and thirty two tickets. I was in charge of running the consignment. 
you know, basically as the local promoter. And I had, I was the one bringing tickets to, to Lou, Lou every day. I mean, it, I had to, you know, kept meeting up with them, getting tickets to them. And that was the final count, 932. And they really could have sold more had they wanted to, but it was just so crazy. They couldn't meet the demand. And with a couple days left, they just kind of shut it down and told everyone to go to the box office. So we, we did over 3,500 for that event. Technically, it was a sellout because we had closed the, the upper deck. Joe Kelly was our vice president of operations at the time. You know, he called me a couple days before and said, look, you know, we can open up that upper deck, but it's going to cost us another extra 10 grand in rental fees and, and security. Uh, you know, do you think we're going to sell that much in tickets to justify that cost? And I said, man, I, I just don't know. I don't think we're gonna. You know, it was a Thursday night. The Phillies were were, were uh, you know playing in the in uh, in the playoffs. Um, so I said no. But we 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 there, there was people outside wanting to get in that didn't have tickets because the lower bowl was completely sold out. And that lower bowl was sold out for Eddie Alvarez. And some people might say, well, that was only 3,500 tickets. But you understand, we were Bellator. We were, and that was in the infant stages of Bellator. We were on Fox Sports Net. We were not on MTV2. We were not on Spike TV. We were on Fox Sports Net. Not Fox Sports 1, Fox Sports Net, which I don't even know it still technically exists. But we were getting blacked out in a lot of markets. People weren't able to watch us regularly. And again, we were going up against the Phillies playoff game. It was that Thursday night. It was not a Friday night. It was not a Saturday night. And Eddie had about 3,500 people that paid to basically see him. I would say, you know, did everybody that bought a ticket that night pay to see Eddie Alvarez? No, but I would say maybe 90 to 95%. They were there because of Eddie Alvarez. It was like a Kimbo Slice type audience where they didn't necessarily know what Bellator was, but everyone knew who Eddie Alvarez was. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, if you're, I mean, you're going to Cleveland with Sipe Miocic, you're potentially going to England with Michael Bisming. Why would you not? I mean, obviously, you know, the commission issues. If that's they could do a maybe- stadium show with Eddie Alvarez. If they priced the tickets low enough, they could, they, you can, they'll, not only will they sell out the Wells Fargo, but they could probably sell, sell a lot of tickets in a, in a, uh, more tickets in a bigger venue. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, obviously, if you're in the Eddie Alvarez camp, you'd love for it to be Conor McGregor because yeah. I mean, that, that is the biggest money fight there is. Oh, you did Eddie Alvarez, Conor McGregor in Philly. You would have to do that at, at Citizens Bank Ballpark or Lincoln Financial Field. That would have to be an outdoor show. There isn't an indoor venue that's big enough to host that. Now I'm sure they could just say, "Oh, we'll do it at the Wells Fargo and just make and get a big house by, uh, you know, making the tickets extremely expensive." But you know, UFC has to realize Philadelphia is a working class town. You know, uh, you, you can't expect everyone to pay. 250 bucks bucks for a uh, nosebleed seats. You have to have tickets that are priced to move that appeal to the uh, blue collar working man or woman. And uh, you do enough of those, you can still make a ton of money. Yeah, it'll be interesting kind of what they see with that. By the way, uh, a Bellator note, uh, I don't know if you saw this, Sam. Uh, Bryn Ward was arrested last week up in uh, up in Connecticut. Um, it was uh, the day Connecticut, I believe, is the newspaper outlet up there that reported it. Uh, I uh, became aware of this on Friday because of this news report. I reached out to Bellator to ask if there was a comment uh, about the the, uh, the report of the arrest of Brent Ward. And uh, as of uh, this time, this recording, this podcast, Bellator has not issued a statement um, on the arrest of Brent Ward. Bloody Elbow, I know, posted a story on Monday about the arrest. They also asked for a comment from Bellator and, and no comment uh, was issued at, at this time. So if I do get a comment from Bellator, I'll, I'll post that up 
on the MMA report.com. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, yeah, I'll tell you this, and Erno Bellator, Sam, I just, is it just me or I feel like the, the wind of the Michael Page, like that momentum, it just seems to, I don't get, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't get like people are all excited about watching him fight this weekend. I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Michael Page fan, so I'm excited to see him fight. That's, I can't speak for other people. Yeah, I mean, obviously it'll be interesting. I mean, it is a, a step up in competition for him, you know, taking on Cyborg Santos, even though, um, you know, there, there's a part of me that questions whether Cyborg Santos should be fighting this soon. Um, you know, after uh, the way his fight with Syed Watt went back in May, of course, also met Mitrion on that card. Uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting to kind of see how that goes on. I, I will tell you this. I will I will not be in front of my television on Saturday night. I'll, I'll be out uh, enjoying a soccer match on Saturday night, so I'll have it on my DVR. But I'm guessing if you're around your computer around, uh, I don't know, 2, 3 o'clock East Coast time, I'm sure there's probably going to be people tweeting out links to watch that thing online. Will that be a sanctioned show, Jason? Or is it non-sanctioned like the uh, show in Italy was? Uh, I am hearing it'll be a sanctioned show. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's it, it. You know, that's that's what I'm hearing. It's going to be. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, nothing has officially come out on that. But like the only show, it wasn't on. It was a. You know, if you look in the the database registry, it says NSF, which you know, which is, to is me, it's inexcusable fight. for a promotion as big as Bellator. Sorry to cut you off, but to have fighters at you know the highest level of MMA compete in a fight that's considered non-sanctioned is is ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, and obviously there there was a you know, um, you know, some issues with uh, with that Italy show in, in terms of uh, the fact that there wasn't any drug testing done for that show, and uh, you know, in today's MMA, that's unacceptable, flat out unacceptable to have a a major show like a Bellator be at a place where there's no drug testing, and you know, obviously in, in a place like you know, I mean, and not to rail on Missouri, but it's just a fact of you, you, when you have a champion. Or a not right now, a former champion, Patricio Pitbull, say he wasn't drug tested for both of his title fights in, in St. Louis. That's a problem, and and I, and I really hope that Bellator will will get out in front of this and, and make some changes. I understand that they don't have the revenues that the UFC has, but um, you, you got to do a better job in, in terms of those drug testing. I mean, and you know, and well, at the I, very I, least, I mean, yeah, you you don't have millions to hire Usada, but the very least, you got to have a ABC sanctioned commission regulate your event. Oh, no, no doubt about it, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, it would be interesting to, to know what the reaction of, say, a, a Scott Coker was when, when he learns that uh, it's official that w, WME IMG has bought the UFC and what initial thought went through his mind. Well, you know, you, you, if I'm Scott Coker, I'm hoping that Ari Emanuel does not pick up the phone and start talking to Viacom execs. Or, I mean, here, here's another aspect of that, Sam. I wonder what, what if there's been any dialogue over the past couple hours between the UFC and, and Roy McDonald. Has anything changed there? That maybe they, they the new ownership says, look, we need to have this guy for our organization. Just get it done. I mean, look, Zufa had the money to resign, to resign him. You know, I would think now that they have now they have even more money to to resign him. So if they want Roy McDonald, he's coming back. If if he signs with Bellator, it's because UFC decided they didn't want him. Yeah, it's uh, simple as that. Simple as that. I mean, yeah. they're they're going to be able to retain any fighter that they want to retain. You know, we haven't really talked a lot about Brock Lesnar, Sam. Um, you know, uh, Brock obviously he did what he needed to do to go out there and get the victory. It, did I, he, it was, oh, so he oh he fought. 
He, he did fight, yes. Oh, okay, because uh, I, I tuned in. I just tuned in for the main event. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I will tell you this. It was it was definitely weird watching a UFC pay-per-view and an ad for a, a, the WWE comes on. That was definitely weird. It's <laughs> part of the deal. It's part of the deal. <laughs> you know, but you know, it was in the post-fight press conference where Brock Lesnar was definitely all uh, WWE promo talking in third person saying Brock Lesnar decides what Brock Lesnar wants to do. <laughs> um, it, 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 you definitely, and even before the post-fight press conference started, and, you know, when you saw that performance, I, I sat there and said, I go, this is not the last of Brock Lesnar in the UFC. No, nope. And no. there's a lot of interesting fights they can do. There's there's rumors that Shane Carwin could return. I thought it was interesting. I didn't see the, vis- the uh, visual verification, but I heard that Bobby Lashley, was at UFC 200. He was there, yes. If you're under contract to Bellator, why would you be at such a high-profile UFC event? Why is that? And if you're Scott Coker, are you you happy about that? uh, Probably not. Um, But, I mean, you know, he could have been there for some type of sponsorship thing and just ended up maybe getting tickets to the show. I I, I can't speak for Bobby Lashley. I mean, it it has been some time since we we have seen Bobby Lashley in the cage. I mean, isn't that interesting? That's interesting. And, you know, there's always rumors that TNA is in trouble. They've lost a lot of top names over the course of the last couple of years. You know, could we see Bobby Lashley go back to WWE and also conversely, Join the Uf- UFC. Could we see a Bobby Lashley versus Brock Lesnar main event on a UFC pay per view? Is that something that is possible? Why? Why do I get the sense we start hearing Brock Fedor rumors? I think we're going to hear those rumors. I think we're, we might hear some rumors about Brock Lashley. I think we're going to hear rumors of Brock Shane Carwin. I think that they're going to try to make the biggest, most money-making epic fights for Brock Lesnar that they possibly can. And I think those are all intriguing fights. I mean, to me, Brock Fedor, there's your main event for the New York card. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's your main event for the first UFC event on the moon. <laughs> I mean, that could be, a, you know, you could take that, you know, that fight to Cowboy Stadium. I mean, look, yeah. if I was in the Fedor camp, I don't think that's a fight I'd take because, oof. Oh, he would get hurt. He would get oh, hurt. I mean. If, 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 you're, if you're in Fedor's camp and you actually care about him as a human being and you're not just in it for the money, you're going to tell Fedor, no, don't, please yeah. don't take this fight. Yeah, Brock no. will hurt him. Brock will really hurt him. Yeah, it, it will be bad. Um Another note from UFC 200, Johnny Hendricks misses weight. And, you know, obviously uh, I'm going to be talking to, to his weight management specialist, Lou Giordano, uh, later on this week. And, uh, you know, kind of, you know, hear from hear from exactly, you know, what went wrong in terms of why Johnny. But, you know, the, the Association of Boxing Commission's meeting is coming up here in a couple of weeks in Las Vegas, and the new weight classes are going to be voted on. The expectations are that you know, these are going to pass and, you know, whether the UFC adopts these weight divisions is, you know, no one from the UFC has gone on record on whether they will, they will, you know, kind of change the way they do things. But, you know, 175 pounds is what Johnny Hendricks needs. Yeah, he's too small to fight at 85, and he's going to kill himself making 170. Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know if you saw this uh, last week. Ross Pearson was talking about the health issues he had when he was trying to make 145 pounds. And, you know, what was also interesting about the, you talked about the early weight, um, 
weigh-ins. Uh, Will Brooks talking about the fact of how it kind of didn't work out for him because he just the the process of you know getting everything back in your body, how he misplayed that, and and kind of said that that messed him up a little bit there. But uh, too many you know, guys it, gorge; they just gorge, they go crazy, and you can't do that. You have to reintroduce water and minerals and vitamins into your body gradually and slowly. And if you do too much too soon. You can get in some serious trouble. Andrew Calandrelli is, is you know, his kidneys shut down because he took he took in too much water after his, his weight cut one time when we fought in a Mohegan Sun and and he 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 couldn't fight the next day. It just his 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 vital organs started shutting down. His body went into shock because he put too much water into his body and his uh, vital organs had stopped processing liquid uh, and, and water. Uh, at the same rate it had been, it just started processing slower because he had deprived himself of it. And when he reintroduced it all at once, his body couldn't process it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a science. I, I think there's no question about it. And, and you got to have the good guys around you that, that know what you're doing. I mean, there was times where I'd be around weigh-ins and you see guys, you know, how they were making weight and then what they're doing after it. Sometimes you just shake your head like, man, does this guy know, know what he's doing Ooh. there? Weight cutting gurus are like martial arts instructors. You've got black belts, and then you've got people pretending to be black belts who act like they know what they're talking about. They they don't they they, they consider themselves experts, and, and they're clueless. And there's I've, I've been next to these weight gurus at events, you know, in saunas with them, you know, by the scale, and they're saying stuff that even I know is one hundred percent wrong, and they're doing it in such an authoritative way, in such a confident. Uh, manner coming off you know as an expert and what they're saying is wrong and you know some of these guys could get somebody killed because they're just they're just they're frauds there are frauds out there there's guys that are amazing at it that are are, are like scientists uh but then there's guys out there that you know they read a couple books and they think they're experts yeah you know it's uh it can be scary out there uh you know one of the questions we got uh from uh Julian Earl was asking about championship clauses and and he was asking did Bellator always have that clause? I can't comment on their contracts um I can tell you that every major organization that doesn't have that is is uh is clueless so if if it's a major organization that's nationally televised and they have world titles, odds are, I would say there's a 99.9% chance that any major organization like that is going to have a champion's clause and probably has had a champion's clause since day one. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's something that, uh, you know, we always uh... – we always see out there, you know, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, what else has been going on with you, man? I mean, it's, it's been a couple of days since we talked. I've been working, man. It's been, it's been crazy. You know, I wasn't even planning on doing a show today, but, uh, these things keep happening in this sport that, that, you know, we're forced to run back to our computers and do shows for, for, for everyone. And, you know, I'm hoping that people are enjoying these shows and that we're getting, uh, a lot of listeners and, you know, hopefully we're getting some new listeners and if everyone could keep uh, spreading the word about this show, letting everyone know how much they enjoy it so we can continue to grow this. I'd be greatly appreciative. I already appreciate all the support that we get in general, but please keep uh, retweeting our, our links. Keep uh, giving us shout outs on Facebook and Twitter. Keep giving us those great reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Do whatever you can to help support this show grow. And uh, I guarantee you, we will take notice and we will be extremely appreciative. And by the way, uh, speaking of Facebook, it only took us like 95 episodes, but we, we do have a Facebook page now. 
Uh, it's uh, the MMA Insiders right there. You, you, uh, you like it on Facebook. We got it uh, up the other uh, day. So uh, would would love if you would sit there and, and put some uh, you know like us on Facebook, and we'll put some uh, we'll put some unique content up there. We, it's, this is episode ninety five, Sam. We're we're approaching episode one hundred. I guess five more. Brock Lesnar's going to headline the show. <laughs> I guess we got to figure no, out. No, Misha Tate's going to headline it, actually. Oh, man. It'll be interesting to see what happens with her going forward. Man. Whew. She was living, I think she was living the champion lifestyle. I think she was doing a lot of interviews, doing a lot of media, going to a lot of dinners, not spending enough time in the gym. And I think that was evident by her weight cut. And, you know, that tap was kind of weak. I, I don't think that it was completely in when, when she tapped. I think she was I would more, call worried more about her nose. It was a more of a she, neck crank. Yeah, I mean, I think she's more worried. I think she just quit. I think she's worried about her nose. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's uh, it'll be, it, to me, it's going to be interesting to see how the UFC promotes Amanda Nunez in, in comparison to how they promoted Holly Holm and Misha Tate after they won the titles. I'm really interested to kind of see how that goes. And obviously with the new ownership group, uh, you know, how do we does a, the does a thought process on how they promote fighters change? Oh, I think they're going to be more aggressive, and I think they're going to try to make these guys more broad-based and, and appeal to a much more broad-based market. I think they're going to try to turn a lot of their guy, uh, their fighters, especially the more charismatic ones, into multimedia superstars. I, mean, yeah, I think you're going to see them appear across a lot of media platforms. The one concern I have is, though, does the new ownership understand that how, how much preparation and focus is needed to prepare for a fight? And that if you burden the fighters with too many media obligations, that it takes away from their training and ultimately takes away from their, their effectiveness and, and their, their performance. And it doesn't matter how, how, how charismatic a fighter is. If they're not winning consistently, you really, there's only so much you can do with them. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how this plays out. I mean, I'm really, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure at some point um, there'll there'll be some press conference and you know they'll talk about the, the direction of the company. But uh, really, it's just uh, interesting times lay ahead, not just for the UFC, but just the the mixed martial arts uh, you know industry a, as a whole. I mean, look, we talked about it earlier in the show. I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, you know, fighter pay is not going to increase. Um, I think the way people think it's going to increase. Um, but, look, as revenues increase, you would expect, you know, the fighters' uh, revenues to increase. But all of a sudden, now you have new owners that are $4 billion in debt. Yep. They've got a lot of uh, catching up to do. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, you want to follow myself on Twitter at Jason underscore Floyd. Follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Kaplan. MMA. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at MMA Insiders PC. If you are interested in being an advertiser on this program, you can email myself, Jason at radioinfluence.com. We can set you up with some advertising packages for this show. Of course, it always airs uh, once a week. You know, sometimes it, it may not be till later in the week because, uh, Sam, it, it doesn't matter. Something always major breaks in MMA, and probably when we get done recording the show, something major else will break. No, I think we're going to be quiet for the next couple of weeks. And, of course, that's going to wrap it up for the MMA Insiders Podcast. Of course, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, MMA Insiders Podcast, and RadioInfluence.com. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. 
This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence.